you're turning to Luke chapter 10, and I, I've met several who are new this week. We're glad you're here. We're walking through the Gospel of Luke, as I said, until next week, which we'll do the life of Moses, and then we'll resume our, our study of the Gospel of Luke. We've been looking at what it means to follow the Lord. And we get to this scene here in chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25. It reminds me of those old Henry stories. I love the twist at the end. You know, the gift of the Magi. And you expect certain things that happen. And there's this, uh, just this intriguing event that occurs. And the gift giving at the end of the story, which I love. Similar is this scene in Luke chapter 10. You have the parable, a shocking parable of a good Samaritan. That can't be. We'll talk about that in a minute. Not for the Jew. And then you have these two siblings. They might look alike, but they sure don't act alike. And you're like, how does this all fit in the storyline? What is Luke trying to do? And so let's look at starting in Luke 10. We'll start in verse 25. And this scene that begins with an expert in the law. Verse 25, it says, an expert in religious law, that is a scribe, that is someone who's, who's gone to Oxford for their PhD. They know their stuff. Probably have the Pentateuch entirely memorized. They know the, the, the law. They also know the traditions that surround the law. Stood up to test Jesus. <laughs> saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? And the expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Father, we come to the text this morning, and we thank you that indeed... You, O oh Lord, are the good God. It is you that sought us. We didn't seek after you. And Father, you've asked us to emulate your Son by loving you well and loving one another well. And we're going to see that in the text today. Guide us as we go through this passage. And we thank you for your glorious word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in verse 25, again, we have this expert, bless his pointed little head. He comes and he has some questions, or at least a question for Jesus. And the text says he's come to test him. This is not an innocent question. Some scholars would like to argue it is. I don't think so because the term is used earlier in Luke of what Satan does with Jesus in the wilderness. He tests him. So this is not, uh, he's coming just to, so he can learn from the master. He's come to test this rabbi. It's a theologically complex question that the religious ruler is, is asking. Because we know in Jewish writings, this was heavily debated on how exactly you were to be saved in the end. It was a fundamental question that later rabbis will ask, and we see this in later Jewish writings. And so, it's, it's a loaded question <laughs> that this religious ruler is posing to Jesus. And I, I can't help but hoping that Jesus will stumble here, or say something that at least will tick off half the crowd uh, in the process. And the irony is, Jesus volleys back with a question, which is typical rabbinic teaching. 
I have a colleague, I've always said, he, he's an Old Testament scholar, that he'd make a good rabbi. Because anytime I ask him a question, he, he volleys back with another question. Just answer my question. Right, well, Jesus does the same. Well, let me ask you, he says, what is written in the law? And I love this. The, the expert in the law wants to keep it up here, what everyone says about God's word. Did you catch that? What's Jesus doing? He's forcing him to go to the word. So many of our seminaries in the land, they, they, they learn a lot about what people say about the text, but they don't study the text. Be very careful. What Jesus is stating is, I'm not here to wrangle over words or have a theological debate with you. What I want you to tell me, you appointed one, you who knows all things, tell me what does the text state? What does the word of God state? In fact, it's as if he's driving him even further into the Shema because that's how he responds. The Shema was those words that start with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Even today, Jews will recite that at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. It is the most important part of a synagogue service is the Shema for many Jews. It's what you want to recite on your deathbed is the Shema. Here, O Israel, your God is one. Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19 is the text that we read together as a church. It's consistent with Old Testament teaching. This is why Jesus will tell him you are correct when you answer from the Shema. Because what the Shema was seen is it, it summarized the Ten Commandments. How do you boil them down? Easy. Two ways. One is you love the Lord your God with all your heart and you love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Ten Commandments. It boils it down. And that's where Jesus is driving this. Now, we have to keep in mind as we go to this text, salvation in the Old Testament, salvation in the New is always by faith. It's not by something we do. So be careful. The law never saved. The Mosaic law showed you needed a savior, but it never saved. The reason we are called to love the Lord our God and to love one another is to show that there has been genuine faith. Because faith without works, James is going to highlight, doesn't he, in chapter 2. It's dead. And so such love as seen here in the, the Shema, in, in what the expert of the law recites to Jesus, is, it's at the heart of all that God calls for, total allegiance. One scholar says it's at the heart of entering the future life is a relationship of devotion, a devotion that places God at the center of one's spiritual life and responds to others in love. It's concrete. It's expecting you to do something. It's not just lip service, loving the Lord your God. In fact, the, the text is clear. Notice what Deuteronomy 6 states, which the expert recites. To love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's your emotion. With your soul, that's your consciousness. Your strength, that's the drive. And the mind is your intelligence. In other words, it's to love God with your whole being. There's, there's not a 50%. This is an all-in, all right? It's intentional. It's purposeful. I saw a, a photo of, it was a bacon and eggs. So there's a plate of fried eggs and this, this platter of bacon. And it said, the chicken is involved, but the pig is all in. <laughs> That's commitment. And, and, 
And that's what we're talking about here, right? It is total commitment, devotion to the Lord. And, and the two, again, go hand in hand. Even in Colossians, the book we studied way back, nine months ago, Colossians 1, Paul says, In our prayers for you, we thank God for your faith in Jesus and your love that you have for all the saints. They go hand in hand. And so this expert in the law has summarized it well when he says it's to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And what does Jesus tell him there in verse 28? Well done. Do this and you will live. Doctrine and duty. They, are, they go hand in hand. Hosea 6. This was the problem with the Israelites. When God said in Hosea 6, For I desire steadfast love, not sacrifice. You're, you give me the lip service, but I'm looking for a changed heart. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The response of the lawyer, though, is very intriguing. Because look at verse 29. But the expert, watch this, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Don't you love that he didn't start with, How do you love the Lord your God with all your heart? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem. Now we know this story well, but pay close attention on how it links to the question that we just had. Fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him down. Notice he's going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a 17 mile trek. It's from 2,500 uh, feet above level to 800 feet below sea level. So I mean, this is a long trek down. It is a very precarious road even today. Uh, there's a spot we used to take the tour buses through. Uh, that road <laughs> is no more because it was washed away. Uh, it's, it's difficult. It's rocky terrain. And it says he fell into the hand of robbers for several centuries. This was a great hangout for thieves, etc. And they would waylay those who would travel. And they only traveled during the day. It was too dangerous to travel at night. They stripped him, beat him up, and went off leaving him half dead. Now by chance, ah, oh, the Lord's intervening, right? By chance a priest who is going down the road and you got, oh, this is great. We've got a rescuer. When he saw that injured man, he passed by on the other side. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. That can't be. Well, then a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him pass by the other side. I love that Jesus used a priest and he used a Levite. A Levite is a servant to a priest. Because we have this rich young ruler, and I think what Jesus is saying is the established Jewish tradition and understanding, you've all missed the mark. The Levite did the same thing, came to the place, saw him, passed by. Verse 33, then we have a Samaritan, and this is... <laughs> I am sure that once as Jesus used the reference of a Samaritan, everyone is like, what? Who was traveling down to where the injured man was. The Samaritan was considered a half-breed to the Jew. They were anathema. The Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. In fact, the region which is between Galilee and Jerusalem, the Jews would do a bypass, go way out of their way, so they didn't have to go through Samaria. 
you have this Samaritan who was, sees the injured man. He saw him and here it is. He felt compassion. He went up, bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine on them. He put on his own, put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. This is two denarii. It would have covered 24 days in a typical inn. In fact, so in other words, he's putting a month's stay. Let me, let me cover that for you. He took care of him and whatever else you spend, he says to the innkeeper, I will repay. And when I come back this way, which of the three do you think, which of these then, Jesus says, do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert, this is the third time he's referred to this as the expert in religious law, said, he, he can't even say the word Samaritan. He says, well, the man who showed him mercy. Right? And Jesus said, go and do the same. Now let's unpack this because as we look at this first scene, this expert in the law, how ironic that he doesn't, no one asked him to ask this question of Jesus. He's doing it to justify himself, the text tells us. Jesus didn't inquire, now who is your neighbor? No, 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 no. And there's several dangers here that come in loving our neighbor. The first of these is a danger of an academic degree. And what I mean by that, there's a lot of head knowledge, but no action. Here's this man who's trying to justify himself. He's looking to validate, look how I've done in caring for people around me. He, he, he never mentioned, as I stated, the first part of the commandment. Instead, what the man's looking for is a theological discussion, isn't he? I remember teaching a class on Revelation a couple years ago, and I had a man who had not seen in the class come up afterwards, and he wanted to have this huge debate on all millennialism, premillennialism, all millennialism. I don't know. And he just went on and on and on about all this stuff. And I said, I'm not, I'm not here to have a theological debate. We're here to study the word and apply it, etc., etc. Later I found out his own marriage was dissolving. I said, this is what Jesus is addressing. You want this theological debate. Let me, let me put it to you where exactly it fits. <laughs> Let me show you this, what we've got. First of all, is the danger of an academic degree. The religious rulers, it's not a coincidence that he uses a priest and a Levite to show you're missing the mark here. But there's another danger in, in loving our neighbor, and that is having an abridged dictionary. We're, we're operating here with a very restricted definition of neighbor in the first century. For the Jew, the neighbor is the one who keeps the covenant. Did you catch that? A Samaritan is not your neighbor. In fact, Sirach, a Jewish writing in the intertestament period, states one does good to a person one knows, and definitely not to sinners. <laughs> you get the idea. Despite first century teaching, one neighbor was not confined to those whom we like or can offer something in return. One commentator states the real issue is not whom we should serve, but that we serve. The concern moves from how we see others to how we are to act. And so the priest, who you thought would be a neighbor, 
to a fellow Jew is not. The Levite is not. I've heard it argued that the reason the priest did not help him is that he's concerned about being defiled. But which direction are we going? Are we going to the temple in Jerusalem or are we going away from the temple? We're going away. There's not an issue about defilement. <laughs> he's already done his duty at the temple. He's going back home to Jericho. And further, there are exemptions in Jewish law for those that are dying. And notice the text says he's nearly half dead. So that would trump any of the religious rulers' rulings on defilement. And so you wonder, the text doesn't tell us why the priest and the Levite don't stop and help. But you have to wonder, do the priests think, ah, oh, I've been serving in the temple so much. My importance is needed elsewhere. I just can't get involved. Or perhaps, I've been helping people all day. I've hit my quota. I'm done. Sorry you're not feeling well, but I, I gotta go. Or perhaps it's, I, I can't be distracted. I'm so busy. I got cooking, cleaning, ironing, mending to do. I mean, it's been a long day and I got a lot more to do. Or I'll pray for you. Ask the Lord to provide someone to assist you as he goes on his way. Or perhaps it's simply, ooh, yuck. I don't do blood. You know, I, I got my Sunday best on. I can't afford to get a stain on this. This garment costs a fortune. James 4, therefore to him that knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. <laughs> the Samaritan defies all logic. It's the O. Henry twist in this account. Because for Jews, to eat with a Samaritan is just as bad as to eat pork. And they don't eat bacon. You were not to share a cup with a Samaritan at a meal. It's the last person you would expect to stop and help this fellow Jew is a Samaritan. Uh, equated to someone from Black Lives Matter and Proud Boys eating a pastrami sandwich in a Jewish deli. I mean, it doesn't happen. Alright? This it, it's it doesn't happen. And here is this this Samaritan who is stopping to help. And notice what he does. Several actions are noted. First of all, he has compassion. That term is literally rendered deeply moved. It's the same term used of Jesus when he saw the widow weeping. <laughs> it's the same term used of the father who went running after his prodigal son who just returned compassion. It also says he went with him and he bandaged his wounds. Most likely he's ripping his own garments as cloths to wrap him, tie him up, or whatever needs to be done. He's pouring oil and wine that soothe the wounds but also serves as a disinfectant. Again, for some Jews, receiving anything from a Samaritan is forbidden, especially oil. He puts him on his animal, which means the Samaritan's going to have to walk. That's really quite an inconvenience, especially that road uh, going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And then the text tells us he brings him to the end, and did you notice this? And took care of them the next day. So he spends the night, he's checked for bed bugs. He's made sure, hey, this is kosher here. This is, this is going to be acceptable for this guy. Innkeepers were also known in the first century as being a little devious. <laughs> 
and I think there's just to make sure that this is going to be okay for this man. But also, I love how the Samaritan says, let me pay for the next 20-some days, and I'm going to come back and check on him to make sure that you've done your job. And so we see this as well. This is what we call becoming a neighbor. It's not based upon race, locale, convenience, or personal gain. The Samaritan simply cares for him. And that's why even the expert in the law has to say, yeah, he showed mercy. It's what Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. If you love those who love you, what credit is that? If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? If this was a big donor at the temple, I suspect the priest would have stopped. <laughs> if it was a fellow priest, he would have stopped. But I don't know this guy's name. And on he goes. If you lend to those who you hope to be repaid, what credit is that? The Samaritan said if, if he still owes anything, if he ordered room service, I'll cover that as well. Then Jesus states, be merciful. It's the same term. Just as your father is merciful. And so Jesus says in the present tense, go. In other words, it needs to be continuous. So you have the danger of an academic degree, which is merely providing lip service. There's the danger of an abridged dictionary, which is wrangling over words. Or there's the danger, the last one is of a broken mirror, focusing solely on self. Our love for others is defined by God's word. A love that includes selflessness and results in actions. In other words, you might argue it's the love that is modeled by Christ, isn't it? And so, this question of how do I inherit eternal life? Well, you have a genuine faith that loves one another. We answered the second part of that great commandment. But what about the first part? And this is what I love. We have nestled, look at verse 38. Says now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him as a guest. Martha is the Martha Stewart of the first century. She's always the one leading the charge. When Lazarus was going to be raised from the tomb, Martha was the first one out to meet Jesus. She had a sister named Mary. Now they look maybe alike, but they sure don't act it. Because look where Mary is. She is sitting at the feet of the Lord and listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted. And by the way, that is always where Mary is in Scripture. She's always seen at the feet of the Savior. But Martha was distracted with all the preparation she had to make. So she came up to him, Jesus, and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. Mary has chosen the best part. It will not be taken away from her. These sisters, again, they're living together, etc. They look maybe look alike, but we got a formula for disaster. One is type A, has to have all the baklava in the right position on the platter. And then you've got Mary who appears to never make her bed. I don't know. And we, we've got a real issue going on here. And, and in fact, Martha understands this and she goes, I'm alone doing all the work. 
Martha's concern is legit. Uh, first of all, the women were to be in the kitchen in the first century, okay? <laughs> first century, that's how I said that. Uh, even, even today in a Middle Eastern culture, I remember my wife and I went to some friends' house that were Palestinian and, and uh, we had gone over for dinner. My wife was whisked away into the kitchen and I never saw it till the end of the evening and all the men were sitting around the table. Um, Mary should not have been out in the area. She should have been helping. And we have, what, 13 guests that had just arrived? The disciples and Jesus? Uh, this is a lot of mouths to feed. And you would expect Mary to be a good hostess and, and working with food preparation. She's not. She should not be in the company of men. That was also taboo. And it was forbidden for a woman to be at the feet of a rabbi. So Martha is legit, and, and it would appear at first, and her response to Jesus to me is not shocking at all. Go, Martha, for all us type A, that's right, get the job done. What's shocking is Jesus' response, not Martha's. And, and rather than uh, pleading with Mary, Jesus praises her. And rather than consoling Martha, he cautions her. There are several dangers as well in loving our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The first of these is a danger of a faulty GPS. I call it a distraction. Jesus says to Martha, you are worried. You are distracted. Notice in verse 41, you are worried and troubled about many things. That is a very unique term. It's only used twice in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's used once of Uzzah. Do you remember Uzzah? The Ark of the Covenant was being transported on a cart. It started to fall and Uzzah reaches out to keep the cart or the Ark of the Covenant to falling on the ground and God strikes him dead. R.C. Sproul said the problem with Uzzah is he assumed his hand was more holier than the dirt. And it says, he was distracted. He was worried. Ecclesiastes also uses it in chapter 3. And that whole section is not to produce, we're concerned about producing things by hand and, and having another appointment. But what the Lord desires is a heart that seeks after him. Martha is distracted. She, what she's doing is fine, but it's, over, it's trumping everything else in the midst she has the creator of the universe reclining in her living room and she's concerned about the chaos in the kitchen. Really? He can make the baklava. <laughs> Just let him do it. He can take care of that, Martha. And so there's the danger of a faulty GPS. There's also a danger of a robust resume. The God needs me attitude. It is by God's grace that he has chosen to use us. And Martha presumes upon the Lord. Did you catch this? Notice what she says in, in, in verse 40. She said, I'm distracted. And so she says to the Lord, don't you care? Ooh, who are you to lecture the Lord? Hmm. And that's the danger, isn't it? We get caught up in what we are doing that, that oh, the Lord needs me. One of the things that we as an elders stated very early on, and we challenged one another, uh, is that we don't own any aspect of this ministry. And that's the real danger when you start a new ministry in particular, and people pour their lives into a particular area. This isn't ours, this is the Lord's. <laughs> CBF is the Lord's. 
And what we do here is the Lord. It's not, it's not about us. But poor Martha, she's gotten wrapped up in this. Well, you, you need me to do this. And this leads to the other danger, and that is self-sufficiency. I love Warren Wiersbe. He states, the best thing you and I can do is to stop looking at our watches and calendars and simply look by faith into the face of God and let him have his way in his time. We need to be careful that we're not depending on our talents and abilities and we haven't gone to the Lord first and sought him. And again, that fits with what's happening here with Martha. She's distracted. She has this God needs me attitude. She's self-sufficient. And that leads us to the fourth danger. And that is the danger of bankruptcy. Losing Christ's provisions. I mean, you have to feel sorry for Martha, don't you? I mean, she's been running around the kitchen, scurrying, getting the fruit cut up, checking the bread, making sure the, 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 there's no spots on the silver. And Jesus tells her, you're so concerned about so much. Really? <laughs> I mean, after that, I'd be like, go ahead and order a pizza. I'm going out. All right? No. He says, Mary, notice what Jesus says. Mary has chosen the best part and it will not be taken from you. This eternal life is based upon a genuine faith that understands we are to love the Lord and love our neighbor as ourself. And Martha is concerned about the price of the coffee filters and she doesn't even have a coffee pot. Charles Tidley in his hymn, Nothing Between, says, Nothing between like worldly pleasure. Habits of life, though harmless they seem, must not my heart from him ever sever. He is my all. There's nothing between. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed face I may see. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. Mary and Martha provide us a very pointed lesson on how to love the Lord, our God. The activities and responsibilities of life should be used to glorify the Lord, not steal glory from Him, create false security in ourselves, or instill the belief that God needs us. Unlike her sister, Mary understood the joy of basking in God's presence. And similar to the model that we see in loving our neighbor, how do we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength? Well, I think it was modeled best by his son, Christ. Not my will, but your will be done, O Father. And so, in this question that the expert raises, and Jesus volleys back, what is the great commandment? It's illustrated the, the latter part on how to love our neighbor through the Good Samaritan. The first part is seen here in the latter part of chapter 10 between two siblings, right? On what it means to truly love the Lord our God with all our heart. If you're looking at your notes, there's three principles to glean here. The first of these is to truly love the Lord is to love one's neighbor. There must be a transformation of the heart. I would argue you cannot truly love the Lord, you cannot truly love your neighbor if there hasn't been a transformation in your heart. Jesus in that Sermon on the Mount gives all this laundry list and he says unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders, you won't have eternal life. And, and they're all looking at each other going, there's no way I'll be better than this Pharisee over here, this expert in the law. I'm Joe Schmo. I mean, really? 
How am I supposed to do that? It's a transformation of the heart. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that his Christ's righteousness is put to our account so that we are seen as righteous because of what Christ accomplished on the cross and our faith in him. And we as the citizens of the United States are deeply indebted and reminded this weekend of those who've given their lives in military service to our country. We have a great country. I'm proud and thankful. And we stand on heads and shoulders of men and women who have paid the ultimate price. However, if you're a resident and not a citizen, you can enjoy the freedoms of much that we have um, and, and appreciate the sacrifices, but you, you can't fully grasp it because you can't vote. You're not part of our democracy. I mean, you're not an American. Christ died for our sins. You can benefit by attending church, seeing the work of the Lord among his people, but if you've not placed your faith in him, you're not a follower of Christ. If you've just given lip service like the religious ruler and you're trying to justify your actions, it's not going to wash. To be a Christ follower, it means yielding your life to him. Recognizing that Christ died on a cross, he rose from the dead, and that you confess your sin and embrace him. Right? And then scripture says, if there's truly a genuineness of faith, then we see the work of the Spirit coming through. And what's, what's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Love. It's how we can love one another. It's how we can love like Christ is because of the dwelling of the Spirit. And so this understands there has to be a transformation of the heart. That's what the expert in the law should have picked up. The first question he should have said is, I'm having a real hard time loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. No. He doesn't go there at all. But that's where he should have gone. So it should have been the first question he asked in this dialogue. Said he tries to justify himself. Secondly, in your notes, the call to love our neighbor is not an option for a Christ follower. You cannot separate the two. That railroad track that's four foot eight inches or so apart, you got to have both rails. You got to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. If one of those rails is off, you're in deep trouble. This train will derail. <laughs> there won't be a rail to ride. 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. Then John writes, the commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. It's not an option. Oh, some are easier to love than others. But look at the good Samaritan. Who's your neighbor? Those in need. Those who are needing someone to show compassion and mercy. And the Samaritan defies all logic for a first century audience as Jesus depicts who is a true neighbor. And third, in your notes, we need consistently to evaluate our mission to ensure that we are doing for the Lord is out of our love for him and a desire for the Lord to be glorified. Jerry Bridges states, we, we obey God's law not to be loved, but because we are loved in Christ. 
There reside several dangers when it comes to loving the Lord our God and loving others. We are called to seek first the kingdom of God. And in the process of loving the Lord and loving others, that Martha trap is so easy to fall into, isn't it? <laughs> Not this church, another church, and this person was asked to play the piano, and she goes, yes, I finally have power. I'm like, well, that's great. April, you play the keyboard. Do you have power? I don't know. I I'm going, really? <laughs> it's not about you. I hate to tell you. It's about the Lord. It's about seeking him. And, and Mary understood what it meant to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. As we celebrate Memorial Day tomorrow, and we reflect on those who loved our country and paid dear for it, may we not stop and think, we need to stop and think about our love for the Lord and our love for one another. We have someone who also loved us and gave his life, and that is Jesus Christ. And he is returning. And for those who, who understand that love that has been showered upon them, they will respond in loving the Lord and loving one another well. <laughs> Father, it's a simple text in many ways. It's a story we know so well, the Good Samaritan. Many of us heard it in Sunday school. The story of Mary and Martha is a little tidbit on the page, and you're going, those are nice. But the theological implications are enormous. Because what it shows is, often like the expert, we seek to justify our actions. Like Martha, we get caught up in what we're doing, or the priest or the Levi, and think we're the cat's meow, when we realize, no, no, no. Our job is to exalt you. Our job is to bask at your presence, to serve you, and then to love those around us, those that are easy to love and those that are difficult to love. Ultimately, men and women have been created in your image. And if we are to love you, we need to, to love the image bearer as well. So help us to do that. Thank you for this powerful reminder. And then Memorial Day, Lord, again, I just pray for families who've lost loved ones. Perhaps it's a grandfather. Perhaps it's a son. Perhaps it's an aunt. Lord, whatever the case may be, we, we are so grateful for those who've gone before us to give us the freedoms we have. But may we not forget the one who died so that we could be free from sin and have a citizenship in heaven. It's your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray.